facts behind the increase in cybercrime, and an update on the U.S. government's cyber threat information sharing initiative. These stories and more coming up in the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. We start off today's report with a frightening but not surprising observation. More criminals than ever operate online. That's a takeaway from Europol's Internet Organized Crime Assessment for 2016, as reported by Data Breach Today editor Matt Schwartz. Matt joins me to talk about the report. Welcome. Hi, Eric. Are we seeing criminals doing what they've done for years, just more so, or are they being innovative, doing new kinds of mischief and deceit? That's a really fascinating question because the axiom with cybercrime has long been that the least amount of effort to generate the maximum amount of return is what you're going to do if you are a cyber criminal. What Europol's been saying is a lot of the old tricks, unfortunately, are still working. And that's a big ding, especially against organizations and their security program. Old tricks include malware and ransomware being a massive component of that. There's increased use of ransomware, but still it's not quite up to the level that we've been seeing for years with ransomware. Also, spear phishing attacks, where you get an email that looks like it's real, but of course it's not. And those have been getting quite targeted of late, especially for tricking senior level executives into transferring money to attackers. But there's some innovation out there too, right? Definitely. The Europol report calls out a few examples of it. There's a bunch of innovation, but some of the really interesting ones that we've seen of late have included the attacks against the SWIFT interbank messaging system. That's been an up-and-coming type of attack. And if successful, attackers could theoretically steal hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars. Another interesting example has been malware attacks against ATMs. Also, we've seen the emergence of attackers being able to compromise payments using contactless payment cards. So there's a wide range of sophistication among these criminals. Definitely. It is all part of what is the burgeoning cybercrime ecosystem. There is a thriving market and a lot of people developing attack tools and solutions, reselling them to the people who want to make money in this way. And they don't need to be technically savvy because they can purchase what they need on the underground. Is cybercrime overtaking a traditional crime? It is. In Europe, there are some countries that have noted that they receive more reports of online crime than they do reports of physical crime. It is definitely overtaking, and that's led to a lot of law enforcement agencies trying to refocus their efforts, bring in more people who have cybercrime expertise or investigative abilities, and to refocus some of the budgets that they're using when it comes to divvying up how they go after criminals. What does this report say about terrorists? One of the side effects of the growth in a burgeoning cybercrime economy and all of these easily available tools is that they can be used not just by people who want to perhaps break into your bank account or trick you into wire transferring them tens of thousands of dollars. And two of the groups called out in the report are child exploitation gangs, which are using some of these tools and darknet capabilities in order to trade in exploitative child material. Another group, are terrorists, even though they have not been technically sophisticated to date, could easily make use of some of the tools that are available. For example, to encrypt communications or for relaying materials in a difficult to trace manner using point-to-point encryption. There's no easy solution here. It's just a problem that is being flagged by Europol. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Eric. It's been nearly a year since Congress passed and President Obama signed the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act. 
The idea behind CISA, as the law is known, is that businesses voluntarily share cyber threat information with the government and vice versa. Businesses are incentivized to participate in the program with the promise that data provided to the government wouldn't be used against them in any legal action, so-called liability protection. The Department of Homeland Security runs the Cyber Threat Information Sharing Program. One aspect of the initiative involves automated indicator sharing. That's sharing cyber threat information machine to machine. DHS went live with the system in March, but didn't publish the final guidance till June. So far, about 50 entities participate in this information sharing program, U.S. government agencies, international governments, and information sharing and analysis organizations, which also publish cyber threat indicators. There also are a few businesses that participate. For the most part, information sharing is a one-way street. We have shared thousands of indicators since the launch of this program. Indicators that we got from law enforcement, that we got from intelligence channels, or that we at DHS got just by defending government networks. That's DHS Assistant Secretary Andy Osmond. Speaking before the U.S. Chamber of Commerce this week, Osmond says only one company is sharing cyber threat information under the program. Right now, we have one company, Anomaly, already sharing indicators back to the Department of Homeland Security. And Anomaly is a cybersecurity vendor, so they themselves are aggregating information from thousands of companies across the U.S. and the world. Osman says he isn't bothered that only 50 entities participate in the automated indicator sharing program and that only one company so far shares cyber threat information. Now, we're growing deliberately. We've built this new system on an aggressive timetable, and nobody has done this before. And so we're working with these 50-odd companies and other entities, and we're saying, okay, as we do this, what do you like? What do you don't like? What are the bugs you're finding in your systems and our systems? And we're tweaking the system every day to improve it based on this customer feedback. And that's one reason that we're growing deliberately is because I don't think any of us know yet what exactly is the information that companies are going to find the most useful. And so we want to grow steadily over time, constantly evolving to meet that customer demand. After his presentation to the chamber, I caught up with Osmond and asked him what metric will DHS use to determine the program's success. Ultimately, our, the, our metric is the breadth of coverage we get in terms of RR indicators getting to companies and other entities across the U.S. That doesn't mean they all have to be members of the program, right? I mentioned Anomaly that's sending us information. They protect thousands of companies. Those companies don't need to sign up directly. They're getting it from their vendor. An ISAC, if they've signed up, those companies that are in the ISAC don't need to sign up directly. So ultimately, breadth of coverage, quality of the information we're sharing, speed of dissemination are how we're going to measure success. And we have not given ourselves a deadline because it's much more important that we do this right. And we're still in the learning stages of finding out what companies want. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Also speaking at the Chamber Cybersecurity Summit was House Homeland Security Committee Chairman Michael McCall. In response to a question... The Texas Republican called on Congress to increase spending on quantum computing research to ensure that the United States is the first nation to employ quantum computers as a tool to decrypt data. Functioning quantum computers are a decade or two away, and they'll make use of quantum states of subatomic particles to process information at speeds exponentially greater than today's devices. Such processing speeds, in theory, could easily break the massively long strings of numbers used in today's encryption software. Though years away, McCall says funding quantum computing research now is critical to national security. Whatever nation develops quantum computing first, it's almost like getting the atomic bomb. And it's going to be that powerful, but in the cyber space. 
We can't lose this one to the Chinese. If the Chinese get quantum computing first, it'll be a disaster from a national security standpoint. The Russians get it first, and believe me, they are trying to get it. We are making some progress in this area, but not enough. I would argue this is an area where more federal funding for research on this issue is, is needed if we really want to be first you know, in this area. The private sector can help in this effort, but it's a national security asset, so the, the federal government has to be driving this. It's not just developing a quantum computer that's crucial to national security. Developing cryptography that could withstand the power of quantum computers is also critical. The National Institute of Standards and Technology has begun researching ways to create such strong cryptography. Here's NIST mathematician Dustin Moody, who co-authored a recent NIST report on post-quantum cryptography. It's quite a big threat because it will take 10 to 20 years to get new algorithms selected, standardized, and implemented out into the field. So it's something that we do need to work on sooner than later. Can we shorten the, the time it takes to get new crypto algorithms? We can do a little bit, and we're trying to do it as quickly as we can. But on the other hand, we want to make sure that we properly vet any algorithms that we select for standardization so that we can completely trust in their security. We don't want to compress the time frame too much because most of the algorithms that are being considered haven't been studied for a long period of time yet. Finally, Global Cyber Alliance CEO Phil Reitinger took a look at various estimates of losses from cybercrime, and based on those assessments, he calculates that the growth rate of those losses is nearly 120% each year. Writing in his blog, Reitinger estimates the overall global economy will reach $90 trillion in 2020. He surmises that if we project cybercrime growth outward from 2021 at only 100% growth a year, most of the world's economic output should be consumed by cybercrime by 2025, in the neighborhood of $100 trillion a year. Now that is funny math at its finest. And he says cybercrime isn't that efficient. He characterizes his own prediction of global economic collapse in 2025 because of cybercrime as FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Still, he asks, will the world economy experience a cyber Armageddon that throws the economy into a crisis, or will it continue to grow predictably but rapidly until total output of the world is a fraction of what it would be if we were cyber secure? Both situations are dire. And Reiniger concludes his blog, Sleep Well. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time.